0: Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, the newest podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody, one of the co-hosts here. I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. And today we are going over chapter five of The Crying of Lot 49. Uh, This is, we are one chapter away from being done with this. This was a longer chapter, and there is quite a lot to go over in this so uh, i'll turn it over to will for a summary of the chapter
1: yeah uh, oedipa in pursuit of the trail of Tristero and intrigued by Kotex's obsession with the nefastus machine heads to berkeley and checks into a hotel near midnight that's hosting the california chapter of the american deaf mute assembly exhausted she struggles to collapse into sleep in a room decorated with a mirror and a Remedios Varo print In her best attempt, she dreams of her and Mucho having beach sex, but wakes up to her own mirror image glaring back at her, upright. She visits the publisher of the original edition of Jacobian Revenge Plays, who sell her a copy and direct her to the warehouse in Oakland to pick it up. When she finally can, she turns to the page that her used copy indicated would hold the variants of the Tristaroo line, but finds only an outline of three other versions and their sources, and names Tristoro as only part of a nonsense pun. The editor was a Professor Emery Bortz, who'd been employed by UC Berkeley at the time of writing, but when Oedipa reaches the English department of the campus, she's told he'd moved to San Narciso College. Oedipa takes this as predictable. As she wanders through the teeming university, Oedipa is struck by the social and political currents swirling about the commons. She wonders at such a steep generational divide, and takes solace that her lack of coordination in the counterculture is made up for by her adeptness at navigating historical mysteries. After finding Nefastus' address in a phone book, she makes her way to his apartment. She introduces herself, referring to Kotex, and asks about being tested for sensitivity to Maxwell's demon. He half apologizes for his viewership of a children's dance performance on the tube, and Oedipa absolves his guilt by explaining her own familiarity with the pedophilic. Nefastus seems appreciative. The machine is identical to the patent, and is presented alongside an information dump about entropy, faith in the demon, and communication, when she asks about a coincidence. Nephastus describes the demon as having been real to Maxwell long before the days of the metaphor. Slightly offended by the profile's refusal to meet her gaze, Oedipus spends at least the better part of an hour, closer to two, begging the demon to make an overture while Hanna-Barbera cartoons roll by in fastest focus. Through, sheer, through force of sheer will, she beholds a maybe shift of the piston, but cannot believe. Oedipha decides the inventor is delusional, and that any sensitive must simply be open to his influence, not the demon. Regardless, she endeavors for another quarter of an hour. Brought nearly to tears by the effort, Nephastus soothes her as best he knows, proposing a quickie in front of the newsreel, soon to air on screen, himself anticipating some orientalist eroticism to bleed through. Oedipa declines with a scream and flea maneuver. He asks her to pass along greetings to Kotex as she starts driving away. Automatically joining the throngs on the, th- on the freeway, Oedipa contemplates the apparent spread of LA-type traffic patterns and smog, sorry, haze, even as far north as San Francisco. The death-defying weaving vehicles provide sufficient background noise to accommodate the consolidation of a few threads of inquiry. At the bottom of this recontextualization, she holds her few facts in one hand, the potential of incoherence in the other, and decides to drift among the masses of the more northern city, so to sift a population less entangled with Pierce for evidence either way. She parks on a side street and embarks on the mission. Rather shortly, she finds herself pushed into the numbers of a tour of a of the gayer establishments that help make the local culture so rich, and in such a bar encounters the lapel pin of the muted posthorn. The bearer seems unsettled by Oedipus' curiosity, and tries deflecting her first few questions, until she vomits spew of her theories and concerns surrounding the symbol. Disarmed by such an effusive display of sincerity, the man with the pin explains his perspective. As far as he knows, the symbol is the trademark of an underground society, the Anamorati Anonymous of people who've sworn off love to provide support on demand to other members, perfect strangers about to relapse into their terrible addiction. The organization had been founded by a man left by his wife following his career's deprecation via computer automation, who sought out public opinion on the viability of suicide. He received a load of correspondence from a hook-handed bum one Sunday evening, nearly all addressed from those who'd failed their own attempts. None made a strong case for life, but he waited for inspiration regardless. It arrived with the self-immolation of the Buddhist monk. After dousing himself with gasoline in the kitchen, his ex and the man responsible for his unemployment barge in and begin fooling around in the next room before noticing the smell and the executive's hysterical laughs. They only mocked his ambival- Sorry. They only mocked his ambivalence. He laughed even more until they leave, and found some- stamps bleached by the gas in his pocket all that remained on their faces was the watermark of the muted horn spitefully he swore off love and took the image for his own drunkenly the enamorata wanders off post narrative and oedipa resumes her downward spiral suddenly confronted by her local relative sexlessness she abandons the tour and begins her drifting again soon and following throughout the rest of the night she happens upon one after another indication of sanity A children's game, like hot hopscotch, played by the astral projection of dreaming kids who only know the rough rhymes of her own keywords. Gang members sporting such symbols on their coats, the shape underlined with the acrostic, don't ever antagonize the horn. It on a bulletin board, assuring those curious they already knew how to find out more. A girl on the bus, tracing it in her breath's window fog a mother impressing upon her son not to trust the government post, only W-A-S-T-E. She comes across an acquaintance she'd met in Mexico with Pierce, an anarchist with the Conjuración de los Insurgentes Anarchistas, named Jesús Arabal. He'd been spooked by inverarities in humanity, his epitomization of the elite villain, and named him an anarchist miracle, like a virgin appearing to an Indian. Such insight had disturbed Oedipa, inspired senseless jealousy. They part, and Oedipa feels that the dead billionaire had been their coordinating principle. Some very out-of-date syndicalist papers had arrived from a waste carrier, and Jesus expresses his faith in the higher levels. As she wanders, an association is secured. Wherever there's an instance of embraced disenfranchisement, there too will be the horn, in some form or another. In retrospect, Oedipa cannot later be too certain of the actual prevalence of such a pattern. But such is the paranoia; it has taken her naive curiosity and replaced the noir with absurd, foundless optimism with shaky cynicism. Outsiders of all sorts were retreating from the mechanics of public life, silent, frightened privacy. But Jesus and the and the enamorato are not the only are not the final brushes of personal connection she'd feel that night. Exhausted and disheveled, she finds an old sailor, blurred posthorn inked on his hand, and promises to deposit his ancient letter to a wife abandoned into a waste box. Holding his fragile body, Oedipus shares in his grief, cradles him like a lost child. When his friend appears and helps guide them to the sailor's home, Oedipus can't help but foster her own mourning for her inability to truly save him. He waves her off, and when she hands over a ten dollar note, he's upset she wouldn't wait for the friend to leave, for discretion. Following his directions to the Dropbox, the Entropy analogy finally connects for Oedipa. She sees clearly how the Sailor's Delirium tremens coincide with the infinitesimal slices of a curve that underlie Calculus, flashes of hyperreality reality as severe as her own, but only a progression towards utter mental collapse. She finds it, the waste box, just a public trash can under an overba- overpass, inscribed with the name and subtle periods alone revealing its true nature. She waits in the shadows for another depositor, then adds the sailor's mail to the pile. Around noon, a young courier collects the contents, and Oedipa sets off in pursuit. She follows him to a rendezvous with a fellow carrier, but continues telling, tailing her original postman for hours. They take train to Oakland, and Oedipus is dragged for hours through neighborhoods unknown. Incredibly, his final destination is the same apartment building that John the Fastest inhabits. Somehow returning to her hotel, she's coerced away from the call of her bed and into joining the deaf-mute conference party in dancing. Surrounded by what should have been Brownian motion, Oedipa recognizes her own beholding of an anarchist miracle as the masses of dancers sans accompaniment proceed without collision. Finally, sleep. Unable to cope with the density of her night, she returns to Kinneret and seeks her psychiatrist for some, any sort of assurance. Unfortunately, Hilarious is taking pot shots at her as she pulls up. Dodging bullets, when she makes it inside, the assistant Helga Blam explains that the good doctor is convinced he's under assault by some outside force. Blam blames his endless stream of bananas clients. Figuring her recent absence may inspire trust somehow, put knocks on the office door and Hilarious starts babbling, expressing remorse for some unspoken past ill acts. He confesses to experimentation in Buchenwald, explains his facial therapy methods developed from one such visage which banished, banished a young Jew named Zvi to hopeless insanity. He threatens to unleash this expression upon his assailants and asks her to pass this message along. When the cops break down the front door, he pulls her inside and reveals that he didn't know who he'd been talking to except for the nebulous other. Through the door, a police officer takes her life story to paper, for the news media. Hilarious continues to unload his baggage. He devoted his post-SS life to the study of Freud, trying his best to reverse his anti-Semitic karma, but knowing he'd end up like Eichmann on trial in Israel. Simply, simply stated, his window for penitence was closed, and his grief, he's left the gewehr on his desk. So Edafoot retrieves it, says, I ought to kill you. But when she lets him live, Hilarious is struck with tears. He asks why she'd come if not for that, and impresses upon her to hold on to her fantasies, so not to dissolve her individuality. She lets the cops in and finds Mucho in the KCUF mobile reporting unit outside. They record an ultra-brief interview about this terrible thing, and cut the broadcast. Oedipa follows the van to the studio, and is met by Mucho's boss, who seems to feel that Mr. Moss is suffering from some illness, a plurality of his spirit, a genericization of himself. A happy couple, the happy couple, drive to grab some lunch, and Mucho is preternaturally sure of the lack of romance between Edipa and Metzger. He begins pontificating on some subjective experience of infinite precision spectral analysis, loving the humanity of a mistuned violin string. That a repeated phrase is somehow spoken always in the same voice, regardless of the speaker. Disturbed by a sudden genuine belief in, she loves me, Edipa confronts him for an explanation of his personality shift. It turns out that one of Hilarious' final acts of semi-sanity was to expand de Bruca to male clients, and Mucho was on acid. Scared, Oedipa believes that she'd seen the last of her husband the day she rented the Impala. He offers to share his newfound peace of mind, but she only shakes no before leaving to return to San Narciso. She realizes she hadn't, couldn't have asked about the stamp. That kiss goodbye
0: may have been their final. So quite a lot going on in this chapter. I am I just want to start off by kind of getting everybody's overall opinion on this chapter as it relates to the rest of the book.
2: I think that if the last chapter, as I talked about last week, sort of represents a point of conversion for Oedipa, then it's likely that this chapter is sort of her her first steps into being not only fully sold into the Tristero and, and the conspiracy surrounding the Waste Post system, but also her understanding that this is something that is truly going to probably take over the rest of her life. You know, looking at this chapter in how constantly Pinchon goes back to these motifs of her being convinced that she's not crazy as she's going through all of the streets at night. She keeps seeing the system everywhere. She keeps seeing it tattooed on people. She's seeing it, um, you know, as graffiti on walls. She's seeing it on clothing, that lapel pin when she's in the bar. And constantly it seems as though she she is a bit at war with herself in that she wants to believe that she's crazy in some respect because it will make this whole thing easier but she now she's being reminded that that she is not and that she's fully come through this with a proper understanding that there is that there is a vaster conspiracy at work here there's a vaster network there's a line in particular where she kind of realizes that this seems to be the system of communication that almost every single underground group uses with one another and so it is her being fully convinced but also wanting to make sure that that is the case and also yearning somewhat for for the simpler life that she had prior in in ignorance
0: yeah i I totally agree uh this is I think really for me i I, I would even say personally this is probably my favorite chapter in the book, and yeah, Oedipus at this point you know is it's pretty cemented that she's in this thing, and there's no going back at this point i I don't really think I could add anything to to your description of it, Kate, I thought that was perfect. Uh, I, that's exactly how I felt, you know, coming away from it. Um, it, it's, you know, again, going back to last week when we kind of talked about how, you know, sad it is to see Edipa stuck in this situation. And I, that really gets hammered home even more here for me, just, you know, and, and as you described it, where she's aware, fully aware of how, enveloped she is in this and that there really almost is no way out and that this is becoming her life now. And this is the only real thing that she has as sad as it is that can keep her going, knowing the consequence it's going to have on her.
2: Yeah. And I'll, I can talk more about it when we get to to talk about Nefastus in that particular scene, but there does seem to be a prevailing sentiment through most of the chapter that she realizes that, this is just another method of entrapment for her, that there is no escaping through understanding what this is or where it comes from or what it means like she had hoped there would be, which, to your point, really redoubles just how tragic of a character she is.
3: One thing that uh, struck me about this chapter is um, how much it's depicted that uh, Oedipa is not in control over her own life uh, I think there's two different times that she's maybe three different times that she's swept along by a crowd um, non-consensually. Um, it does seem to be like it's, she doesn't seem to be in control of, her, of herself, even whenever she's wandering San Francisco looking for signs. Um, and that's not necessarily a logical thing to do. She, she seems a little bit um, overly consumed by her search. Um I did find it interesting. I mean, I do feel like she did kind of start taking control of her life and her surroundings uh, during the showdown with Hilarious where uh, she grabs his gun and I think she points it at him and um, is finally kind of, instead of letting other people kind of make her decisions for her and uh, do it like, you know, she seems to um, instead be the one who's, Whose actions are are the are what are dominating the the surrounding that she's in? Um, I just found that interesting to think about. I mean, she doesn't I've talked about this a little bit in past episodes, but you know, Oedipus doesn't have a lot of agency, a lot of control over her surroundings, which you could interpret that as um, being, you know, um, I think nowadays people really love it when Women in literature have a little bit more control and agency, but when you think about um you know, he was writing this at the same time as Gravity's Rainbow. And a lot of characters in Gravity's Rainbow are kind of similar to Oedipa in this chapter, in that um they're just kind of being swept along um uh, by their surroundings. Like, you know, Slothrop is not does not have barely any control over his life. Um I just find it interesting to think about how it's complete like it's over and over shown that Oedipa, um is not doing the best job of taking control of, of what she's doing.
2: Yeah, and yeah. to your point about her taking control over the situation with hilarious, she also takes control over the situation with her marriage at the end of the chapter. She goes from, de- you know, diffusing this one situation that she's driven herself into and is now solving through her own actions to, in that sort of final conversation between her and Mucho, the mentally seems to decide this is the end of the relationship like there's no there's no reason for me to be in this in this marriage any longer I'll kiss this man one last time talk to him one last time and then that'll be the end of it so you are correct in that while she has moved from being trapped in one position to to now being more mentally trapped in another with the 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 muted posthorn conspiracy she is actively learning how to to rest more control for herself on the environment that does surround her, that she does have some say in.
1: Yeah, in some general sense, the whole chapter is her exercising almost a, a almost a Taoist impulse to to surrender to the flow around her, while constantly fighting against it and trying to force everything into relevant and irrelevant piles. And that conflict seems to teach her that yeah at some point you do need to put your foot down you do need to decide one way or the other you can't just let things keep on moving you without your say so
0: and i like the fact that will brought up this was being written around the same time that gravity's rainbow was because there are as we've mentioned in in i think it was in the chapter three episode with the the casino that seemed you know very similar to the because, you know, Hermann Gehrig, uh, there's a lot of bits here and there. And we'll get into them more, uh, where there's these kind of connections to uh, things that happen in in Gravity's Rain, But not necessarily plot points, although those are there, I think. But also characters, concepts, little things that get peppered in here and there. And it, it kind of made me think more and more about how the writing process of this was... In a way, I guess a lead up to what he was going to do with Gravity's Rainbow, and 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 how it, yeah, we we talked about his his quote unquote dislike of of this book, and I can't help but wonder if that's because he was using this to fill that time between V and and Gravity's Rainbow and was this was just kind of a sounding board to get some of those ideas out there in a much much more epic scale that would come in gravity's rainbow but let's talk about characters because we get a few new ones here not as i don't think it was as many as as chapter four but there were still quite a few so uh first off there's emery bortz i absolutely love that name and my kind of knee-jerk reaction to that name and that character was wondering if he has that name specifically because of his being an editor for that collection of plays that was mysteriously missing any mention of tristero that he's perhaps as his name implies filing down the parts that the imperfections or the sharp edges that would be needed to be removed from there i don't know if y'all have a similar idea on that or
2: it certainly makes sense for the character. Like I I wouldn't be surprised if that was why Pinchon named him that at all. He's, he's very big into using names to, to describe what a character does or is or represents.
0: Yeah. And often in a very indirect way, way, not maybe not indirect, but maybe obtuse would be the better word where it's, you it's there and it's always right there. But sometimes you have to kind of dig to get the the true kind of meaning of it. Uh we also meet Nefastus for the first time, uh, who I immediately dislike every time, uh, just because he's an absolute fucking creep.
1: Wonder uh, why you might dislike that guy. Yeah. Right? I know. <laughs> uh
0: he yeah. I it's one of those things I, I feel like I've I block it from my memory. Every time I go back to this and then I'm like, oh yeah, I hate this guy. And there's, there's nothing, you know, no good qualities about him. He's an absolute asshole and a creep. Another um,
2: instance of the name matching literally what he is.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the, the unnamed person at the Greek way that Oedipus spends, a pretty good chunk of time talking to and i think was a vital character to the the chapter in the story in general um what what were y'all's thoughts on on him
3: i do wonder how how seriously we're supposed to take nefastus i mean he does have edipa a stare at a picture for seemingly over an hour um and while i do feel like his joke i mean I guess he really isn't joking about having sex while watching the news, um, but that does. I mean, I don't know. I think if I was alive in the '60s, I might have found that funny. You know, especially the part about China, because um, it is. It does make sense logically why that would. I mean, it's a really weird like thing to, to write or to say, uh, but you know. I mean, one thing you do think about when you think about China, especially after World War II, is just how big the population is. Um, so I don't know. It could, it, it does scan to me as like a, an attempt at humor. I don't necessarily know if, if nefastis is joking or not. Um, I kind of lean towards he's not, and he's actually, you know, a creep and a pervert, but it is, it is, it can be viewed as comedic or funny, I would say.
1: Yeah. It, It. the, the difficult part for me when it comes to viewing it through that lens, because absolutely. I mean, it. you can view all horrible things as absurd in some way. Um, It's just that Pynchon has nailed the tone that those kinds of cult leader types around the the earlier 20th century, like Aleister Crowley and Jack Parsons um, and L. Ron Hubbard all kind of shared. And he nails that vibe so much that that kind of... the, The humor to me comes more across as a villain hiding his true feelings in a lot of ways.
2: The only reason why I don't scan much of it as humorous, because obviously there is there is an inherent absurdity to it, but I think the reason I, I primarily don't scan it as as being for humor or or humorous is because it it is part of an established pattern of Oedipus having run-ins with men and immediately having them be abusive. The only difference really is that Nefastus has no pretense for his request for them to sleep together like he doesn't he doesn't try to ply her with alcohol in the way that some characters do he doesn't try to to necessarily do anything to make it easier to get her to agree to sleep with him he just walks out of the other room and says yeah we can do it in here now
0: Um, no subtlety whatsoever
2: no and so as sort of being especially within the context of the chapter of edipa moving to taking more control of her circumstances you know where instead of kind of playing into the game a bit like she does when she puts on you know 36 layers of clothing and while still resisting the the impulses of the other man she just leaves and chooses to remove herself from that situation so in some ways i think nefastis's particular style of abuse in that scene has more to do with the the final end conclusion of her Continually running into these men who are who are trying to take advantage of her, where there is no, there is no sugarcoating to it. There's no way that you can try and say that it was it was like a seduction tactic or anything like that. It it just is plainly what it is, and both Oedipa and the reader end up with that understanding at the end of the scene.
0: Yeah, what were y'all's thoughts on the unnamed? guy at the Greek way the one that oedipus has a uh, lengthy conversation with
1: uh, on some level I find it very hard to view the enamorato as much of a character he, he absolutely is one obviously both literally and you know in a spiritual sense but uh, also you know he's all he really does is say wow you sure are screwed aren't you well here's this story I heard i just don't find him very compelling as a result
3: one thing i found interesting about him is that um i think at the beginning of the conversation edipa reveals or not reveals but just acts like she's from the Thurn and taxi taxis um people and he doesn't have any idea who that is which did kind of inform me that um you can be a part of the tristero and a part of WASTE and um not know like he only seems to know about the NM Murado anonymous he doesn't seem to know um about other aspects of the Tristero system which does seem to speak to um a certain amount of you know like the the different the different parts of um the Tristero are not necessarily aware of the other parts um which I find interesting to think about um, I don't know if that ignorance is intentional or not, uh, but he does seem somewhat ignorant of the greater system that he's a part of.
0: Yeah, and I, that's what kind of what I thought was really interesting about him is that I I read that as kind of showing how vast waste had become and, and and Tristero and and all of it had become, to the point that it that even the people within it have no idea how expansive it really is. That there can be these kind of subsects within the same organization that are completely unaware of the other ones that exist out there.
2: I think it also shows the way that things can get co-opted and twisted around, which gets back to what we were talking about last week in relation to sort of the counterculture movement that fell apart and and was ultimately unsuccessful, that even when you do have something that is this expansive underground network, the symbols are still there that technically anybody can see and they can get co-opted and turn into something else.
1: Yeah, and the, the part, in particular, the, the IA in general, the way it was discussed as complete isolates who respond to calls to uh, help one another, you know, it's modeled as similar to AA or NA, but in reality, what that rings as more akin to uh just prior to the 60s is uh the the kkk of that time and and it, it in some way can be viewed as a discussion of how for any meaningful subversive conspiracy to function you need you need information siloing and you need to prevent people from understanding what the left hand is doing if they're operating the right in order to prevent you know one person given up the ghost um, from ruining the whole cabal, but... What it also does is it leads to things like the IA springing up, which are just entirely... essentially pointless. Because they're not going to effectively help one another stay not in love. I mean, that's... it's... It's just not... it's just not an effective mission, is it? What does it achieve?
3: yeah and to kind of build on what you' were saying with the information secrecy and stuff that I did kind of that does kind of remind me of uh, intelligence services, uh, perhaps how uh, the military militaries can be run um, is you know information secrecy um I did do a kind of deeper dive on operation Paperclip and m k Ultra and the kind of confluence between the two, and that is something that came up some is how um, members of that conspiracy were not necessarily aware of stuff that was going on elsewhere. And uh, this is kind of a general comment about the Tristero, but this is something that the Michael S. Judge in Death is Just Around the Corner gets into, is you can, you know, if, if you, this is maybe best viewed through the lens of stuff like WikiLeaks, but you can reduce uh, the CIA down into, you know, people passing messages back and forth. Um that's what a lot of government is, that's what a lot of intelligence services is. That's what a lot of the military is, is just people passing messages back and forth. Um, which is an interesting way to way to view the Tristero as like maybe a replacement of like, you know, the counterculture's intelligence service or something.
2: Which does get to Oedipus point that she's you know, as Pinchon puts into the chapter, it seems like waste is used by every single underground subversive group for their communication. Mm-hmm. Even the dolphins. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing is just an aside on that scene with the unnamed character is I found the monologue where he goes into the the history of how the IA was founded. A, I do think that that whole thing is is very absurdly funny in the way that it's written. But um, as somebody who reads a lot of David Foster Wallace's work, it's almost Wallaceian in nature. The idea that you have this one problem that continually stacks itself over and over and over and over again until it reaches such an absurd point where this man is is going to burn himself in his kitchen in a Buddhist style. And then the the reason why he's going to burn himself enters his house and explains that he is even doing that inefficiently, and this is why yeah. he was fired. <laughs> um, Wallace was obviously a, a pretty big fan of, of Pinchon, but sort of spurned the postmodern movement later in his career. It's interesting to see how something like that became so influential in in his writing, even after he had moved past wanting to use postmodernism in his own writing.
0: Well, something else I thought was interesting about that unnamed uh, character was his his mention in tying into the whole, you know, trying to help people who need to be in love. You know, he mentioned specifically that you never see those people twice, and I thought that was really. Uh, in in comparing that to the signs that Oedipus sees later on and has been seeing, they're, they're never seen twice. You know, she sees them when she wants to see them, and then when she goes back to confirm their existence, it's gone or it's something else. It's, you know, one of those tricks of the mind where, you know, a shadow in your room is really just a pile of clothes that the light just happened to hit right at that time. As far as other characters, we also had um, Jesus Arabal, who I kind of took his whole scene with Oedipa as a sort of literal come to Jesus moment. I don't know what y'all thought.
1: Um, well, so first of all, we should give him the, the title he deserves. He's the original Jesus of suburbia.
0: This is, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought exactly the same thing. I was actually listening to that album, not too terribly long ago.
1: Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like Arabal is he, he seems to me like just kind of a, an instance of true believers who contradict themselves one, once again. Um, like I I mean, at, at this point, I buy that the CIA is the CIA. It's not actually a separate insurgency group.
3: One thing I found interesting about the his version of the CIA versus the actual CIA. If they are indeed different, is um, that they both want revolutions to happen, particularly in Latin American countries and South American mm-hmm. countries, uh, but the reasons they have for wanting that re- those revolutions to happen are pretty much opposites, which does kind of play into how he views Pierce. Um, I struggled with um, Oedipus' jealousy and exactly what was going on between Jesus and Pierce. Uh, But it does, what I pulled away from it is Pierce seems to be, like, in some ways the exact opposite of Jesus and what he stands for. Um, Oh, yeah. Which does, it did kind of, you know, maybe that gives Jesus something to push. Because it did seem to initially kind of stun Jesus, but then it seemed to kind of motivate him to stay on his path. And I did think it was interesting that perhaps, you know, Pierce gives him an ideal villain, an ideal opponent, like something to push back on.
1: I find very interesting in the Jesus section, the specific choice of line that he was part owner here with the Yucateco who still believed in the revolution, (laughs) their revolution. And I, you know, it's the first word of a sentence, so of course it's going to be capitalized. but So then why is it emphasized as well as capitalized? If it's not supposed to be an indication that it, it's them rather than a, a genuine grassroots campaign of anarcho-syndicalism.
2: Yeah, I collect that too, where it definitely does purposely seem to be a, a capital t they situation. Um, mm-hmm. Which, I mean, there have been a number of coups that have been put in place in in South America in particular to put down... Popular elections for socialist or or other forms of government that were put in place So it could be a reference to something like that going on
1: Well, so the the Mexican Revolution Um, actually is kind of a, like a very multi-stage event And it started out with a a, You know, US-supported placement of President Madero And, uh, the anarcho-syndicalists led by, like, Pancho Villa and all Were, uh were a lot of the fighters on the ground floor for the true revolution. That wasn't just essentially the CIA's actions. And in this case, it seems like Pynchon might be hinting that even that was
0: seeded. So the other characters that I, I don't think I missed any of this, but there's also, so we meet Dr. Hilarious for the first time. Uh, Really, I guess the only time, Um, how did y'all feel about his, his role? in the chapter
3: one thing that occurred to me about that whole section is um i don't know it does i didn't want to take it for granted that what he's saying is true and that he was actually involved in all the human experimentation at camp Buchenwald. i don't know how to say it in german um because he doesn't i mean he does seem to know a fair amount about it um again i'm not 100 percent sure on what was public knowledge in the sixties, and what was not? And you know, if Pynchon perhaps had access to um, classified documents um, and stuff like that, but the fact that he's being so crazy, the fact that he's being anti-Semitic, which there there can be a, a link between uh, mental health issues and anti-Semitism, I think. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I kind of. I mean, the fact that he has the the German rifle does seem to speak to the fact that he maybe was actually part of the SS or whatever the um German Nazi um people who had were running that stuff but it did it did occur to me that you know I don't I could I could see it being possible that he's just has read about that stuff and he's having a psychotic break and he's just like convinced that he was there but he actually was not you know cuz a big part of um like, you know, people having psychotic breaks, they'll they'll believe stuff that's technically impossible. You know, like I don't I don't know. I did find it interesting, um, and especially in the Operation Paperclip, MK Ultra, you know, human experimentation stuff. because um, it is documented that um the US government made deals with a fair amount of Nazi officials to have them uh be expatriated to America in return for America having access to their research. I I believe that happened with Japanese scientists as well, Um, which is an interesting thing to think about in terms of Pynchon's connections to the military industrial complex and stuff, but.
0: I definitely agree with you as far as that, the the kind of duality of of Dr. Hilarious and whether or not, because it's never explicitly confirmed that he was where he claims to have been and, and that he did what he claims to have done. So we're kind of taking him at his word, if, if we can. And yeah, he absolutely could just be going through a complete mental breakdown. I, the, the first thing that came to my mind reading that section was how it paralleled the, the scene in Doctor Strangelove with, um, I'm forgetting the name of the, uh, of the characters, Peter Sellers' character and... Um, uh, Mandrake and Ripper. Thank you, Mandrake and Ripper. it 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 had a lot of parallels to how that scene was set up and it played out. And it makes sense because Strangelove came out at sixty three if I'm not mistaken, which would have been around the time that he was writing this. So i I and I you know, obviously Penynchon loves you know his his TV and and film references. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was intentionally kind of placed in there uh, to give that kind of dark humor uh, that that Dr. Strangelove carried with it.
1: I feel like Hilarious is afraid of enough completely irrational things that are not based in, um, oh, okay. Let me restart that sentence. Uh, it, I feel like his, his fear of the Israeli spec ops coming to abduct him is delusional enough that make, that it makes me not want to doubt his Buchenwald story. I mean, obviously, you know, there's no such thing as a face that drives people insane, But he's also, you know, assuming that the one time he did it proves that it's a reliable process, despite, and he mentions other studies that they did that found much less success. And in particular, it seems to me like his, his response to Oedipus not killing him, his just breaking down into tears is much more of a, a sincere expression of regret in some way than an indication of really anything else I guess.
2: I think the other thing that lends credence to the idea that he was there but potentially you know through a haze of LSD doesn't remember what he did or is undergoing some kind of a psychotic break in relation to whether or not he actually did drive people insane is the fact that he talks many times about how as a methodology of atonement he tried to align himself with like jewish psychoanalytic analytical principles from freud as opposed to german you know uh, therapists or philosophers he established his practice in kinneret which is uh, a, a hebrew word that is used often for the sea of galilee that runs through through israel so there also does seem to be a desire in him to align with with things related to jewish people As as he puts a couple of times as a way to to kind of make up for the things that he did in the past, which doesn't seem like the actions of somebody who is who is completely hallucinating their experience or just lying.
3: It is also quite possible that he's feeling so much guilt and he's so haunted by what he's done that that has caused him to to have a psychotic episode. I do think that's possible as well.
0: I was about to say the same thing that, yeah, the, the, the weight, and it would be an enormous weight, especially for someone who recognizes the impact that they had in that kind of a situation could absolutely lead to that kind of a breakdown. And I think there's some, there's some credence to the breakdown in, in, in my mind, at least, when he talks about that, that face, that I can make a face kind of that, there's such a, a sense of this wanting to have this power that no one else can have that I think ties more to the, the breakdown side of it. But I think to get to that breakdown, absolutely, yeah, it could be just because of everything that he did and, and the reality of it all has sunk in. And so he is, you know, LSD is that way of trying to block out or come to terms and make sense of everything that had happened already. And it just was too much overloaded and, you know, you overload the circuit and it, it just blows out like that.
2: Especially to your point with what mucho says at the end of the chapter about lsd um if it is truly like in- increasing your sort of emotional or mental capacity it's possible that through using lsd over and over again as a way to try and either understand it or or apply to his own practice and, and his own mental health it just made it even more clear how evil what he did was and it it drove him to uh to, to completely lose his mind
1: well and so maybe you y'all take from his his insistence that he never took LSD and that he did so he he refused to do so for the sake of maintaining his uh ego distinction. And yet he still you know, the, the moments just before that are him expressing that, Oh, hey, I just assumed you were some part of a of just a group of people, you know, the others. You know, another it It well, seems contradictory,
0: so yeah, yeah, it does. and i th- I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just agreeing. um it it could be because I know with if I'm not I'm trying to remember the history of of lSD and its creation and everything. and i, I if I remember correctly, when it was synthesized, it wasn't known at the time that it would do what it would do. It was because it was accidentally. Um, it, and I don't know that it was accidentally ingested necessarily. I think it was just in the way that it was being handled, it triggered uh, the the reaction that it had. And it could be, if that's the case, then it could be the case with Hilarious that even just in administering it and handing it out, if he's handling it improperly, it could be having an, an, an effect on him. That's one thing I true.
3: Found, yeah, one thing I found interesting is the quote, uh, at least I know who I am and who the others are, which does seem to speak to the fact that he understands the the psychedelic headspace um where he you know he's 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 expressing the fact that he he has not experienced a psychedelic headspace but he understands it because a big part of the psychedelic head state um and this is kind of cliche, but it's also um you know i think pretty true is that people when they're on you know mushrooms l s d whatever they they tend to do this whole like everything is connected. You know, we're all one person. You know, like um, hippie, like you know, Mother Earth type stuff. We're all equal and the same, and that kind of stuff. So it does. He does, like you know, have some knowledge on on what his patients are going through, and has obviously talked to them about about their emotions while they're on
0: the drug. So the last character we have, I I honestly, there's really not much to mention about him. I don't think is is Cesar Funch, uh, Mucha's boss, manager. who's kind of tacked in there at the end. Um, I don't really have anything to say about him, particularly if anybody else does. All I can
1: think of is that he makes an interesting contrast point where Mucho does have both Oedipa, at least prior to the end of this chapter, and Funch trying to look out for him while Oedipa is constantly feeling completely isolated.
0: Yeah. Well, let's move on to discussing the things that happen in this chapter. So at the beginning of the chapter, we have that scene where Oedipus dreaming of, uh, making love to mucho on the beach. Do you think that is a a sign of her missing him or just missing the, the comfort of familiarity?
2: I think it's the comfort of, of familiarity, but I also think that it has to do with what she had hoped that marriage would be. Um, and, believing that perhaps she had found someone who really loved her and, and could be there for her. And now that she's, she's going through this process in the chapter of understanding that that is not what the relationship is and that she's going to have to walk away from it. She's just sort of dreaming of, of the reality of what it could have been if it had gone the way that she had hoped.
3: I think it's important to note that that the dream happens in a, in a California that doesn't exist. Um, I, I did kind of mentally link it with Mexico and perhaps her trip with Pierce to Mexico and perhaps some like dream displacement where, you know, she's actually, she's been thinking about Pierce so much that then her mind, uh, transfers that to mucho in like the unconscious, you know, dreamy dream way. Um,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it.
1: Yeah. What, what it, what it really says to me is, yeah, I agree. Kate, that that's. uh, it indicates, you know, uh, some sense of a dream that has not come together. But what it, it is is also, you know, she's dreaming about Mucho having sex with her in a paradise while she's staring at her own reflection in the mirror. Uh, and it, it seems, I mean, with so much narcissism in this uh, sorry imagery throughout this entire book, I find it very hard to not think of it. In some way as both uh, discussing how you know she's she just the straightforward contrast of you know she had somebody she thought she could trust and suddenly she's alone but also the idea that it was all in her head to begin with that mucho and she were never destined for true love
2: yeah
3: uh, so this is a bit off topic, but there was a few things I liked about the opening that I wanted to point out, or this kind of small stuff. I did see um, in my like guidebook to Crawling of Block 49, they do explore a little bit of why the opening sentence says should instead of could. Um, which does seem to imply to me that the narrator knows that Driblet is dead. Uh, it's just that Oedipa doesn't, you know, because if it was should, then if she had gone to Driblet right then, then she might have caught him. Uh, before he died. Um which is interesting interesting to think about. I also I found two different parts of that opening to be reminiscent of Vineland. Uh the description of the hotel like being up in the hills uh did remind yeah. me of the, the wedding scene in Vineland, which is a, a pretty fun scene. And then there's there's that's one
0: of my favorite scenes in that book, yeah.
3: Yeah. I like that part a lot. And uh then there's the, the phrase leaf fractured. Uh, which I think the opening paragraph or maybe even the opening sentence of Vineland describes a uh, sun playing the, the sun playing through um, a tree as it relates to like the sun shining on, I think it's Zoid in his house. Which I, th- I thought was interesting as well. Uh,
0: so the, the next, there was a part, this might be, I don't know that it would be the most pinch on part of the chapter for me, but we'll get to that when we get to it. But, there's a there's a scene when she's walking around. Um, the let me find the exact page here. Uh, she moved through it carrying her fat book, attracted, unsure, a stranger wanting to feel relevant but knowing how much of a search among alternate universes it would take. I'm not gonna read the whole thing because it goes a lot farther than that. But I I found that paragraph uh, to be absolutely enthralling. I, I went back and reread it a few times just to kind of really take in all of it. It seems to me that it it's really just kind of exploring the difference in college culture at that time against the time that Oedipa would have been enrolled, which, if my math is correct, if she's 27, 28, um, would have been kind of the tail end of the whole McCarthyism and, and all of that. So the college culture she's seeing now would have been vastly different than the experiences she would have had if she i don't know that it's ever explicitly stated that she went to college or if if it's even implied
3: i think I, i'm not sure if it is stated i have seen scholars take it for granted that she went to college uh, i'm not sure exactly what what passage that that gives them that impression um but i do i have seen critics just kind of refer to her as being a college graduate
1: it feels implied in the in the sentence um this Berkeley was like no somnolent siwash out of her own past at all. Um, it's, it's definitely ambiguous.
0: yeah, whether she graduated or not, I mean I, it's hard to, to you know think that she wouldn't have at least attended college or you know if she had friends that were there would have been there. but yeah, I, I, I thought that was interesting to kind of explore that that difference in, in the college culture in that short of a span of time.
2: Yeah, there's actually a lecture that you can listen to. I forgot the university or the professor's name, unfortunately, um, but it's uploaded on YouTube of of a professor who's teaching the book. And she, she talks about that particular chapter, I think, or that part of the chapter for about an hour um, and exploring the difference between how it would have been, not just in present tense when she was giving the lecture, but also between around the time that Oedipa would have been in college and then when the book was actually happening. It seems as though Pynchon was. It also seems very in- intentional that he chose Berkeley too. For everything that's happened at Berkeley, um, in trying to to deliberately showcase it as probably a a institution that has grown into something that is is very anti-establishment, which likely was not the case in in the preceding two or three decades.
0: I think I know the video you're talking about. Was that the one from Yale?
2: That sounds correct.
0: Yeah. I've watched parts of that. I need to go back and, and finish it, but I was I really enjoyed what I saw of it. We also get, and correct me if I'm wrong here. This is the first time entropy is mentioned. The word itself, not necessarily the concept, but the actual word, is the I believe the first time we get it in this in this book. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Which for anyone who you know, if this is your first pinch on get 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 a good understanding of what entropy is cuz you're going <laughs> to see it a lot. So I, okay, so there was a quote, let me pull it up here when she's with Nefastus. And it has to do, let me pull it up here cuz I want to get the exact quote. Here we go. The sensitive must receive that staggering set of energies and feedback something like the same quantity of information to keep it all cycling. That I thought really kind of spoke to the whole conspiracy theory side of this in that in order to keep that that going as you know when you get we talked about this before when you get to a certain point in in really any conspiracy theory you pass that point of return and you at that point i think have to start kind of finding symbols and signals where there may not actually be any and you're kind of creating this this self-contained echo chamber even it's more i think nowadays you can get it more as an actual echo chamber with the internet and everything like that but you have to keep feeding that machine so to speak to keep what you're going after moving forward otherwise you stall out and you suddenly have no purpose and no way to keep it moving and, and keep having something to go forward to
2: yeah, I think that this whole scene with Nefastus, I'm going to try and keep my comments here short because I could talk about this scene for a long time, but I think this whole scene with Nefastus and, and the machine that he's created is really a microcosm of a lot of the things happening in the book as a whole from a standpoint of talking about extracting meaning, of sorting logic from, you know, illogical conceit, and just the way the whole way that it's set up to from the the cadence of what happens is so important because she's she's going there after speaking with somebody who has confirmed the existence of of waste as a as a real entity, and she's going there because she's interested in whether or not she is somebody who is going to be capable of operating as a sensitive who's going to be able to power the the sorting engine of the box, so to speak. And she's brought into that room. She sat down. She's explained what entropy is. The the quote in particular where Nefastis says, a metaphor, it connects the world of thermodynamics to the world of information flow. The machine uses both. The demon makes the metaphor not only verbally graceful but also objectively true, is is a pretty bold-faced statement of of all of those ideals of of sorting out meaning from experience and sorting out fact from fiction. And after she sits there and stares at the photo for a really, really long time, she thinks that she actually makes it work. Like it mentions that she sees out of the side of her eye that she feels as though not only the picture has changed, but that the piston must have moved slightly. And then mm. it isn't until seemingly television is responsible for breaking her conversation that she fails and then he comes in and tries to initiate a sexual encounter with her. And so looking at it as a microcosm of the whole book, it's as if Oedipa does contain the possibility that she is capable of tracking down the truth behind waste about understanding the Tristero. That she can be a sensitive, she can be a sorter, she can be somebody who who makes the laws of thermodynamics and information flow work. But it is ultimately going to be outside forces that disrupt that for her. And then the moment she fails, the moment there is an outside force that disrupts her ability to actually complete that, is when suddenly... There is another instance of one of her oppressors coming back in to try and keep her in her place. Um, it, it's it's such a perfect scene for so many reasons, but particularly as a sort of gestalt of of the book's themes and an explanation from from Pinch on to the reader of what's really going on there. I think it's it's absolutely brilliant.
1: I agree entirely, um, but it it is interesting because. That that whole phenomenon of her feeling like she might have just seen it before being distracted by random Hanna Barbera cartoons, for one is incredibly uh is is a prevalent theme throughout all of Pynchon's works, that particular uh you know, coordination of paranoia and distraction. Um and more generally you know you know. That is, that is paranoia. It is that sense that if you just try a little harder, if you just think about it a little more, it'll make sense. And you you know you're right. You know, Look, the piston has to move. You know it has to move. You're just going to have to sit there and focus long enough until you see it move. And so while it is on a symbolic level uh, very much a, an indication of her her being distracted by outside forces in order to prevent her from actually sorting. What it is as well is just a simple e- explanation of how delusional she's become.
2: Yeah. Great point. There is a, there's
3: two parts of that section that I found really interesting. Uh, the first is the first is that sentence, the demon collects data on each and every one. If it was just the demon collects data period, um, it would make more. It would it would have kind of gone over my head a little bit more. I wouldn't have focused on it as much, but it did remind me of the fact that you know, U.S. government surveillance, I think, was pretty widespread in the '60s. And I don't. I I'm under the impression that wiretaps were not made illegal until like about a year after this book was published. Um, which is interesting. I mean, it, it sounds right. Yeah, because if it was if it was just the like demon collects data. You know, you can maybe link that to, you know, the government being uh, the demon or something. But um, the fact that it's on each and every one is, is interesting to me that it's kind of speaking to how widespread government surveillance was at that time. And then that same paragraph, the last sentence, uh, one little movement against all that massive complex of information destroyed over and over with each power stroke. Um that does seem to kind of point to. I link that to kind of the 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 pointlessness of of indiv- individual protest and how um, if just one individual you know tries to subvert the system or bring down the system, they're just going to be completely overwhelmed and it's not going to have any effect. And you know the power of the crowd is much more than the power of the the individual.
0: Yeah, single voice is just going to get washed out by all the all the background noise. The other thing this made me think of, and this kind of actually just hit me while we were talking about it, was how, from my admittedly limited knowledge on it, how much this seems like a Scientology rip where that whole thing of just sitting in a room and and trying to make a thing happen that isn't really there. Um, I haven't actually gone through that. I can't remember what they call it, the whole... Dianetics, um, of... dialogue, whatever the test Love is, processing, get... I think
3: processing. Is process.
0: Thank you. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah. It just it reminded me of that. Just that kind of, um, just, it's just ridiculous by its own nature of just sitting there and, and trying to make something out of nothing and then believing that there is something in the nothingness because you've just convinced yourself that there is.
3: That, um, your mention of Scientology is interesting to me because, uh, looking over. I searched Crying of Lot 49 on the Pinchin subreddit, and I did find somebody who seemed to take it much, like, way too much for granted that the Crying of the Lot 49 is a reference to Jack Parsons' uh, book, *Liber Liber 49, um, which Jack Parsons, you know, he was a rocket scientist, um, which would play into the Gravity's Rainbow, Lot 49 being written around at the same time as Gravity's Rainbow. Um, and there is a, there is the reference to magic in this chapter, the high magic of low puns. And I, I, I believe that there's not, I think that's the only reference to magic, um, in the whole book. Um, just for, kind of for fun, I did read Parsons, Liber 49, Liber 49, which is a pretty short book. I think it would probably would have come out as like a pamphlet or something. I didn't find anything, um, at all really i found two different quotes that you could kind of if you're stretching it a little bit um you could link towards this chapter the main one is uh, thou shalt be outcast and accursed a lonely wanderer in abomin- abominable places which i do think you could link to edipa's um search for meaning in this chapter but um i don't know i the guy on the subreddit like i said seemed to seemed very sure of himself um and I don't necessarily... I don't really know a lot about Jack Parsons. But Jack Parsons was, like, lived with L. Ron Hubbard. Um, L. Ron Hubbard, like, stole Jack Parsons' wife and also conned Jack Parsons out of a large
2: amount of money. So, it just reminded me of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, calls, I think it was what you said last week, Will, that you thought that Kotex or that someone at Yo-Yo Dine could have been being brought up as as Pynchon's hatred of Jack Parsons, if I remember correctly. Yeah,
1: yeah no, no, there, so... Nef- Nefastus doesn't pop up again in, in the rest of his books, but Jack Parsons is specifically railed against for like a conspicuously long paragraph in kind of somewhere in the middle of part three of Gravity's Rainbow. Um, and Jack Parsons was kind of the guy who got rocket science into a real science, because prior to that, it was viewed as just as absurd as Maxwell's Demon. The idea that you would somehow be able to force solid fuel to burn in certain directions and have a, essentially like an inverted chimney that directs all of the oxygenation and provides that thrust. Um, so Parsons is a very is very similar to Nefastis. I mean, outside of rocket science, he is mostly famous for hanging out with L. Ron Hubbard and Aleister Crowley throw in sex parties, um, just generally kind of abusing his reputation as a boundaries-pushing genius scientist, despite having very little to actually show for it. And uh, that actually, the, 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 the moment where he's describing, Nefastus is describing that communication is the key, uh, reminds me a whole lot of the section actually in the first chapter of against the day where they describe how their perpetual motion engine works. Mm-hmm. It just, uh, it's, I think Pynchon has some real desire to be able to write those bullshit explanations for non-existent functioning engines in the same way that people in the 1800s did all the time.
0: So when Oedipa, uh leaves the fastest's... Uh, house, and rightly so. She uh, there's a there's a a quote in here that I really liked. Um, Amid the exhaust, sweat, glare, and ill humor of a summer evening on an American freeway, Edipa Moss pondered her Tristero problem. All the silence of San Narciso, the calm surface of the motel pool, the complinative contours of residential streets like raking's in the sands of a Japanese garden had not allowed her to think as leisurely as this freeway madness. That line resonated with me on a level that i was not ready for i i have these kind of moments of driving and just like in 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 a weird way i can focus more even though my brain is is doing so much more you know with paying attention to what's happening all around me it's a weird time that i can focus and think about weird things if i need to i don't know if i'm alone in that but that definitely hit me that way
3: no, there's that's definitely a thing for me, especially with um, my creative writing endeavors. Uh, it's, it, I'll, I can get very frustrated. So I'll be driving, and it seems like I'll realize all this stuff that um, I really should be writing down. And as I've gotten older, I've done a lot better job of not getting on my fucking phone while driving and not being an asshole like that. But I get what you're saying completely, where the mind seems to kind of slip into... Um, uh, I, yeah, like a, a state where you can do like higher level thought very easily with while you're driving.
2: Yeah, I'm the same way. I have a 25 minute commute to work every single day. So I'm I'm spending about an hour on the road every day between going to work and going home. And I do a lot of the same thing. And to your point, Luke, with with my own creative writing with the novel that I'm finishing, like a lot of my best thoughts come during that period. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I experienced that as well. And in some way I think of it as a metaphorical constructive interference.
0: It's an interesting name for it, I like that. So the next little bit that I wanted to mention for my reading through of this was, uh, this is on page 88 from mine. Um, It says, either Tristarrow did exist in its own right, or it was being presumed, perhaps fantasied by Oedipus, so hung up on and uh interpenetrated with the dead man's estate. This this to me is kind of that that moment where Oedipus paranoia and and everything that's happening really gets cemented. This is this is to me like her last grasp at getting out of it, the last opportunity she has to escape the net, so to speak. And put all of it behind her and and move forward with her life in a more constructive way. But obviously where she goes is is the opposite and, and falls further into it.
2: Yeah, especially, I mean, coming from the previous quote you read out of, of driving and just sort of letting her mind kind of wander and relax after her encounter, the other line in that same paragraph where it says she only had to drift tonight at random and watch nothing happen to be convinced it was purely nervous a little something for her shrink to fix like there is definitely an initial impulse there of i i can make this go away if if i try um but the the world that she's about to drive into makes that impossible for her
1: yeah it's almost like she's an alcoholic who's like yeah i'll just ha- i'll just nurse a beer tonight right mm-hmm. and it just pushes her further down the tunnel
0: well we we kind of already went over the whole scene in the greek way a little bit when we when we were talking earlier about the the unnamed character there did anybody else have anything more that they wanted to add on to that that scene
1: well i'm curious if any of you recognized the cherubic face description of the real arnold snarb and if maybe that was used in another section of the book? And so is a hint to the identity of Arnold Snarl.
2: I can't I say. I, I didn't catch anything. that. No.
1: I don't think so. Just curious.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I clocked the description, but I can't say that it, it matches with anything else from the book that I can yeah. remember.
1: I, I did want to mention that I really appreciate the use of the real bar, the Finocchios. Which is uh, the Italian version of the F slur? Oh, is it? But I didn't. That it, it's no a idea. real bar in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we also we talked about the the kind of story within the story that the the unnamed guy goes into um, regarding the the IBM um, person who was going to emulate self imolate like the Buddhist monk, and then the um, the guy that was basically responsible for canning him came in and, and told him all about how he's doing it wrong. I, I kind of wanted to re- go back on that real quick and just use that as an example of, of Pinchon's humor, because I, I think a lot of times, it's, we mentioned this, I think, in the, maybe the first episode, there there tends to be a lot of, especially in the academic discussions that I've seen, there tends to be a sort of, I don't want to say it gets swept away, but they, there's not as much mention of his humor. It's more focused on the the kind of, you know, highbrow or abstract nature of a lot of what he does, but there's so much twisted and dark and sometimes just juvenile humor that exists in his work. And this is such a good example of that.
2: Yeah, true. And I think, I mean, uh, we've talked, I think, in every single episode so far about the mix of highbrow and lowbrow humor, yeah. Um, which I, I definitely think comes from how much he, he loved TV and loved entertainment. And I think, you, I think it asked a question, Cody, last week about whether or not the mention of television with the conversation with Mr. Thoth was pointing to anything. I think largely it's pointing to the same thing that the the scene with Nefastus is pointing to, where while the TV is confusing Thoth's ability to recall his memories or his past conversations, it also disrupts Oedipus' ability to focus. I think there's something very real within Pynchon where he recognizes the fact that television can distract people and can confuse people and can be something that is incredibly damaging in one way or another but also he seems to recognize that the same types of humor or storytelling or or absurd elements of cartoons or or lowbrow humor that is is most commonly associated with television can be used for like good reason and and can add something to for quote for for black voter term higher art. And it shows a real media literacy on his part that he's able to blend those things seamlessly.
1: Yeah, he 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 repeatedly threw out his books, but it's very clear in lot 49 and I think in Vineland, if I'm remembering correctly, <laughs> um, that his issue with television is not what the you know, the moral majority of the time, would have been complaining about or that was later but you know the same people 20 years mm-hmm. earlier um, it, it's not about like oh these these are these are stupid boxes they they don't challenge you so they make you stupid uh, what he's concerned about is it's essentially like an inverted information silo where everybody's getting the same information and so whoever manipulates the degree of truth in the television programming has immense power. And so it's more of a, a stochastic fear than a condemnation of the juvenile or the simple. Because, yeah, everyone does like laughing at some dumb jokes every
0: once in a while. Yeah, I think it would be foolish to say no. Well, there are, I think there are certainly humorless people in the world yeah met yeah. a few of them sure sure there's yeah.
3: that uh there's that quote attributed to Pynchon's sister where like Pynchon's sister's husband asked her um what was what's what's Thomas Pynchon most likely doing right now and she said watching the Brady Bunch um <laughs> which is just kind of funny to me to think of Pynchon you know perhaps stoned or perhaps sober just sitting there watching the Brady Bunch you know it's it's so like I mean, it's typical for television of that time I think, but. It, even worse for the Brady Bunch it's so like you know suburban and safe, and I don't know it's just interesting to me
1: um in the in the way that you know Oedipa finds some as I said constructive interference on the freeway, I get the sense that Pynchon uses uh schlocky television as just a sounding board for his own ideas that he's just sitting there watching, laughing sincerely appreciating the humor and the humanity that's there, but also the back of his mind, his subconscious maybe, or just, you know, not, not fully engaged. He is also throwing at, throwing ideas out at that and trying to fit his own themes into the media in front of him and seeing how they bounce off.
2: Yeah, I agree completely. That was more or less what I was going to say. And I think we'll have a lot more to talk about it when we get to Vineland because it's, it's a bit more prevalent there in my opinion, but it also seems to be something that a lot of of other authors have done over their careers too. I mean, not to bring them up again, but David Foster Wallace was a was a television addict and talked a lot about um, like seductive commercial entertainment and how it can be. It's about essentially it's about what you take out of it. You know, both both Pynchon or Wallace or any other number of authors clearly had some level of derision for something in it, but they were still able to to grasp something from it and utilize that other part of their brain to to add it to their own medium as a way to connect with their audience or to to break up the monotony of their text or, or just to in, inject humor
0: yeah i mean I, I think it's it's television especially in in this time period was and still is a, a real double-edged sword you can really i think it, it's important for us to be able to kind of shut our brains off in a way and just kind of sit and enjoy something for an hour and a half, 2 hours. But at the same time, you know, like uh, like Will said earlier, like whoever's in control of the information that's being broadcast absolutely dictates the message that's getting sent out there. And if you're not able to sort the the information properly to kind of use the Maxwell's demon analogy, then it can have these kind of dangerous consequences and I think that's kind of what we see, and I think that's kind of what he's getting at with a lot of this is, you know, it, it really comes down to what you do with the information that you're given and how you process and analyze that information going forward, and and then apply it to whatever it is you're you're examining.
2: Which seems to be a broader theme of of Pynchon's work in in general. That was something that he wrote about a lot.
0: So kind of on that note, when in kind of two different places, there's this kind of discussion almost of of what i took is confirmation bias first in in the story of the guy who was going to self-immolate because of everything that happened he he placed an ad uh, to kind of see what to do and I, to me that kind of felt like you know he's he already has set in his mind what he's going to do he just kind of wants that positive not necessarily positive feedback he wants that that affirmation that you know that's yeah that's the choice that's what you should do and obviously that backfired because you know he got the opposite of what he wanted but then Edipa also when she starts wandering around town, um, it's there's the the line in here, and she spent the rest of the night finding the image of the Tristero post horn. In Chinatown, in the dark window of an herbalist, she thought she saw it on a sign among ideographs, but the streetlight was dim. Later, on a sidewalk, she saw two of them in chalk, 20 feet apart. Between them, a complicated array of boxes, some with letters, some with numbers. It, it, Oedipus is at this point now where she's so entrenched in this whole thing that she's she wants to find this and she's going to see it where she wants to see it, whether it's actually there or not. Her, her mind is going to interpret these things that may or may not be what it really is. It's going to interpret them as what she wants it to be.
1: Yeah. And even later on, just a couple of pages later, you know, it, it specifically says that she, she can't remember how many times it happened. Uh, literally she grew so to expect it that perhaps she did not see it quite as often as she later was to remember seeing it a couple, three times would really have made enough or too much.
0: Mm-hmm. And also she's in all of this, she's drunk and kind of sobering up as she's going through. But I mean, nonetheless, it, her, her perception is already distorted from, you know, being drunk. So. And sleep deprived. And sleep, to- oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of forgot about it. like how, at this point, how little sleep she's getting, which is combined with alcohol, definitely not a good state of mind.
1: Well, and th- this whole section, basically from the moment she runs from the fastest through to when she gets back to Kinneret, I have a very hard time reading this as not intentionally written to make the reader consider that she's been dosed with some kind of psychedelic because mm-hmm. uh, this this chapter to me and to a lot of other people feel it feels like the epitome of like a bad acid trip we're constantly just wandering around making mountains out of molehills but ignoring you know the curb in front of your foot
2: Particularly when she finally gets to the children and they're they're playing around a muted post horn that's been drawn in chalk, like that. That in particular is is very bad trip imagery.
0: Yes. Well, and they even say that they're they say something to the effect of like they're not really there; they're just dreaming that they're there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. What did what did y'all make of that? Because I find that a really beautiful moment in the book and kind of a, a weirdly wonderful reprieve from the tension of the rest of this chapter but it's
0: also just disturbing on some other level. It is. It's, it's a haunting kind of thing. I, I, so I, and I mentioned this to y'all um, off, off the episode earlier during the week that this whole scene reminded me of, of David Lynch's end empire, which it, it, it's an amazing film. And it, it kind of, it, there were some parallels that I, I was thinking of while reading this. And I went back and rewatched the movie uh, a couple days ago. And there's there's a long part of the movie. The whole kind of premise of the film is that this actress if, essentially falls into believing that she is her own character and trying to determine what parts of the film are her as the actress and are her as the character is all blended together and distorted. And I kind of got that same vibe when Oedipus was wandering around in this, you know sort of dreamlike or I hadn't really made the connection to the LSD thing, but that would make sense as well. But her her brain at this point is in, in a situation where it's just processing so much information and it doesn't know what to do with it. And so it's kind of twisting it into the only thing that she can imagine it to be. And then you have all these moments like when she runs into these kids and they're they're talking about how we're not really here. We're we're dreaming ourselves being here. It had such a lynchian feel to it that you know i i that's where my mind went with it
2: yeah i think the other part of it that i always come back to that i find particularly sweet is pinchon seems to be commenting on the innocence of children too in that that um these kids are are playing around a symbol that as we've learned has to do with with murder and conflict between the US postal system and and whatever organization controls this and is associated with all of these shadowy underground groups that some of which are are just social outcast people but some of other are most likely very nefarious organizations the associations of what it is that they're you know playing with and and jumping around on are not clear to them and it's just they they're making a game out of it and just that that relative innocence of childhood of just being able to escape the the cruel realities of the world that you live in simply because you're not aware of them yet that's always the the portion of this chapter that that comes across to me in in how Pynchon um writes out that section
1: yeah and then it's that's not not immediately but shortly thereafter contrasted a couple of page later pages later where Oedipus Realizing the connection between the disenfranchised and the the waste system, the posthorn, uh, it says, "A child roaming the night who missed the death before birth, a certain outcasts do the do the dear lulling blankness of the community." Yeah, I
2: don't know what that contrast
1: means, but it's right there.
2: I I mean, it it could very much just be a, a yearning for for childhood again.
0: Yeah, because I mean, she's you know, we we kind of get the impression that she wants that return to. A simpler time you know mm-hmm. with, with the dream of mucho and and other you know instances where we've seen that that she's still aware of of how her life was and and still i think wants to be able to go back to that but just at this point can't and yeah definitely kids have that that i don't want to say ignorance of the world around them but that's kind of what it is like they're they're not exposed to that kind of stuff at such a young age most of them unfortunately there are kids who have to deal with that kind of shit but so many kids can just you know do what they're doing and not they're not worried about all the bullshit that goes on around in the world and it would be nice to be able to to have that that mentality as an adult yeah um let's kind of go back to the uh Jesus Arabal um section of this cuz I think there's there's a lot that we can kind of touch on and I know we kind of talked about it earlier but um I I think that's kind of a vital scene. Did did anybody have anything in particular with that scene that they wanted to go over? I looked into um I'm probably horribly mispronouncing the name Bakunin um who was a Russian socialist and anarchist. Um I didn't go too deep into his whole background, but it seemed like there was some interesting connection um with his character in there, um, have have any of y'all had any familiarity with that, with him?
3: Um, I have seen him mentioned in relation to Ursula K. Le Guin's *The Dispossessed*, which does get into a um, an exploration of uh, what a what an anarchist society um, would actually look like and how it would function in a pretty in depth way. Um, I think *The Dispossessed* would have come out. It was the late '60s, early '70s, so it's around this time. Um, but that's the only that's the only place I've seen that proper noun ever is in relation to her research for that book.
1: Yeah, I've I've never read any book back in, but I, I think generally he's viewed as the father of anarcho syndicalism. Yeah, that, that he's you know just kind of the the guy who tried to combine. Max Stirner's egoism with uh, the Marxist dialectic of history.
0: So something else, and, and I don't know if, if anybody else picked up on this. There's a, a brief line uh, on my edition. It's on page 100. Uh, it's just a sentence, so it went. And my mind immediately went to Kurt Vonnegut. Um, he famously used the, the phrase, so it goes in Slaughterhouse-Five, which came out only a couple years after this was... Um, that after this was published, I don't. I couldn't find anything that explicitly tied his line to this line, but it's it's similar enough in not only the choice of words. It's only three words, but I mean, it's you know one word is different in there, but also in in just the, kind of the meaning of it. Um, but I, for the life of me, could not find anything where. Obviously, I couldn't find anything where Pinchon was talking about Vonnegut, but I couldn't really find anything where Vonnegut talked about Pinchon. And any influence he had, I know they—they they both, to me, from what I have read, I've read a lot of vonnegut. There is a lot of similarities that can be drawn between his work and and Pynchon's. Obviously, vonnegut was leaned way more into the sci-fi end of things and um, had a very different writing style. But I think thematically, they touched on a lot of the same kind of things, and they shared a lot of the same ideologies and views. Especially given that they were both, uh, both of them went to Cornell. They both were in World War II. And they both had ties into World War II. Vonnegut obviously was way more entrenched into it, um, but I don't know if y'all, if if any of y'all caught that, or if you have any thoughts on that.
3: What? Um. Yeah. So did a uh, Slaughterhouse Five
2: come out? Came out after Cry of Forty Nine. Sixty Nine. Right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just wondering.
2: I think that there's a lot of comparison between the two of them. Like they, they do have similar lives at, to your point, but also on a real broad base. They, they do talk a lot about the same things thematically, certainly less so like paranoia or conspiracies or, or some of the stuff that is very directly related to Lot 49, but I think while well, Pinchon is certainly bleaker in his outlook on the world, they are similar writers in terms of, of thematic intent. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised necessarily if, if Vonnegut had read lot 49 and, and pulled some inspiration there but I, I can't say that I would know of anything specific
1: yeah the this like the the general attitude of so so it goes or so it went I mean in, in Slaughterhouse 5 is you know often read as a, an icon of you know essentially the what PTSD does to your brain and I think it's something that pops up in a lot of people who've been through traumatic events in their lives But in a lot of ways, uh, Vonnegut, you know, he's, what, like 10, 15 years older than Pynchon? Yeah, I
0: think he was a little bit older, yeah.
1: Yeah, he's he's kind of like, just, he's slightly less bitter because he didn't realize his genius at such a young age. He's a little, he feels like he had, or he felt he had less of a chip on his shoulder and less of something to prove to the world, maybe.
0: Yeah. I don't know. I, I just thought that was an interesting little... Um, bit in there um let's let's talk about the uh, the dance that happens at the um deaf mute gathering um i i thought it was a really really interesting scene in the book what did y'all take from it
3: it is it does seem to speak to the absurdity of um of this book in general, I mean the whole thing of them all dancing and uh, not knocking into each other um it did it did strike me as somewhat impossible um the I played uh football in high school I went to a small Christian high school in Colorado Colorado springs um and high school football is just not near as big of a deal in Colorado as it is in places like Texas. I'm not trying to like mm-hmm. brag or anything but um <laughs> Anyway, we played, um, we would play each year. We were in the same conference as the Colorado school for the deaf and blind. Um, so I do have some experience with, I mean, something like this where, you know, they, they couldn't hear the whistle in basketball and football. Um, so there would be miscommunications and, you know, late hits and a lot of collisions that maybe shouldn't have happened. Um, so it does, it just, it did kind of remind me of that, um, And it did kind of strike me as just inherently impossible, Um, but it's it's a fun mental image of people like in in a silent room um, dancing in a very like the mental image I had was them dancing very gracefully and um, you know looking really good while they did it and stuff. Um, It's it's a cool mental image, but it does seem to speak to um, you know I don't it's it's not possible in real life. I would argue.
0: Yeah, it, that's kind of how I took it as well. It, there's a sort of beauty in its chaos, and I, I had the same image that you did, Luke, of that, of it being almost choreographed in its in its uh, intricacy, almost like it would have to be, just given the nature of of all of those people and and how they would have to almost. I I would imagine they'd have to practice that and really get a sense of that of the rhythm without being able to hear any kind of music in it. And it was kind of, to me, in in that idea of anarchy being, you know, a there is chaos inherent in it, and it's also unobtainable. Um, and I, I thought that was an interesting uh, little placement in there, because you know, given everything that's happened up to this point, and um, and that kind of distillation of of this scene where you have all this what could be chaotic but is, is actually just this well-oiled machine almost.
2: Yeah, I think the inclusion of the reference back to um, what Jesus says at the end of the paragraph, his line about the miracle is is potentially pointing to a circumstance where things have been sorted out properly, even though they shouldn't, in the way that, you know, Nefastus's machine is supposed to do something that is impossible because it if, if sorting properly, is breaking one of the laws of thermodynamics. So it, it's something that should be chaotic, but does work. Despite the fact that there is very little input going into these people from a standpoint of not being able to see or not being able to hear, they're still able to to work in a perfect choreographed um, sequence. And I think it, given the fact that Oedipa feels humiliated, at the end of it, or I, I'm trying to remember what the exact wording of it is, but um demoralized. Like she feels demoralized at the end of it. I think going out of the fact that she was not able to sort things out. She was not able to make a finely ordered, you know, set up out of out of chaos by, by being a proper sensitive, seeing an example of that happening just hits her that she can't even accomplish what these people have, even though she has more um physical like agency and faculty, and so she has to run away from it. That's what I pull out of that particular inclusion in the narrative,
0: well, and she also gets pulled into it against her will um mm-hmm. where they you know they kind of grab her and bring her into it, and I thought that was an interesting way of looking at her, you know really zooming out and looking at it as her whole um uh, entrance into this entire story where she was kind of thrust against her will into this explosion of chaos and everything is working around her. And she's, you know, like I said, just moving along, being strung along almost, you know, out of control, but being controlled.
1: Yeah. It's almost an encapsulation of both, both the horror that would be Maxwell's demon if exercised on a human scale, as well as the beauty that it would produce. And that's the sort of, I mean, that it, this is one of those things where I, I, I feel it's, Tension kind of both in in the same sentence uh, expressing hope for a, an anarchist reality despite his pessimism of the, the actual potential of that as well as his sympathies but derision of um, fascism because without the demon everything is coordinated even though Oedipa has no clue what's going on, even though the dancers can't hear one another, can't listen to the music, can't actually coordinate in any way, except via vision, but they're still able to go with the flow.
3: One thing I did find interesting about, um, that whole part as well is, uh, I do, I think I'm under the impression that people that are deaf, uh, are able to feel stuff like, uh, large amounts of bass. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, that could be an aspect of, of, you know, them going along to the beat and stuff. Cause they perhaps if the bass is up loud enough, they could still feel it in, in terms of vibrations.
0: Yeah. It was something I, I wanted to look into this because I'm, I'm almost sure there has to be, you know, groups of deaf, uh, excuse me, groups of deaf, uh, people who have, who have, have can dance and, and do things like this. And it would have to be obviously through feeling the the vibration. i've heard I've heard deaf people talk about um, well, I shouldn't say it like that i've I've read of deaf people using the vibration to feel music in different ways. Um, and it's it's fascinating how you can use that and and take in a sensory uh, input in a totally different way and still kind of get the same um, information from it.
1: Uh, yeah it, the only thing is it's explicitly stated that the room is silent
0: yes and I, that's something I, I do like about the imagery of it is that that silence and all you would be hearing really is the you know the shuffling of feet and the and the switching of fabric up against itself would be really interesting but then yeah at the same time you know how are what are they dancing to so to finish up, let's let's kind of talk about the last we 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 went over the scene with um with Oedipa and Hilarious. Uh, unless anybody has anything else they wanted to add on to that. Um we can talk about the the final scene with, with Oedipus and um and Mucho. I'm sorry, Edna Mosh and Mucho. Yeah, we can move on. I'm fine with that. Yeah. yeah so. I think we've mined uh-huh. that for all it's worth. Yeah. So the that final scene with, with Oedipus and Mucho I thought was really interesting, um, especially that, you know, Mucho taking in all that information at once and claiming he can sort out the, the singular was it a bad-tuned violin string?
1: Yeah. Yep. The way um, this chapter dances between the, the, the DT metaphor and then later on Mucho talking about reconstructing The entirety of a a musician from one mistuned string of a violin, I think, is a beautiful juxtaposition.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah.
3: One thing that, because whenever I first reread this section, the ending section of the book, I struggled with a lot of Mucho's dialogue and what exactly he was getting at and how it perhaps related to him having uh multiple personalities and stuff um i eventually just kind of concluded um that it's basically in some ways at least just kind of random word salad um you know i've um i've had friends who were pretty heavily into psychedelics um i have some experience myself with psychedelics and it can lead people to just kind of gibber jabber on about really dumb shit you know in the same way that being drunk people can kind of just go on and on about stuff and it doesn't make any fucking sense. I did kind of, I, I, I thought that maybe this, this, that section of the chapter could be Pynchon basically complaining about how, you know, in the, I'm sure in the circles that he ran in, there's at least some of this in the 1960s of him having to listen to like stoned or tripping people, um, just go on about a bunch of dumb bullshit. Um, because it does whatever Mucho's going on about it doesn't I had trouble kind of pinning down like what he was getting at and what the point of it was and I I don't the one thing that I really got a, drew away from it was that maybe Pynchon just was expressing his frustration with um you know the the type of people that he was having to be around in the 60s Yeah,
2: I think it is somewhat of a of a statement on on the abuse of psychedelics because if you know people who reach that state where they're they're just babbling endlessly or lose the ability to, to think coherently, it usually comes after prolonged, continuous use, which is not what drugs like that should be used for. And it would appear as though Mucho is taking it the same way you would Tylenol or anything else that would be prescribed. So I do think that you're probably correct, Luke, in that there is somewhat of a criticism going on there. The other thing that I generally pull out of it is if you do interpret Oedipus for lack of a better term, odyssey through the evening where she keeps seeing symbols repeated and sees the, the children and, and experiences all of this confirmation of, of her new reality as potentially being induced by psychedelics in some way, then Mucho's statement of um because the world is so abundant, no end to it, baby. You're an antenna, sending your pattern out across a million lives at night, and they're your lives too. And then even before that, where he says, you take it because it's good, because you hear and see things, even smell them, taste like you never could. Those seem to be statements that support the fact that Oedipa could have been dosed with something, and that's why she has the experience over the course of the evening that she does. So that's the other reason why I would say that that's included there cuz I I do believe that is what happened to her. So,
1: I'm going to I'm just going to say I don't think it's word salad. I mean, it is not meaningful. It has no value. Like the stuff he's saying is essentially nothing. It all boils down to oh, I thought this thing and that thing was good and it's like okay, sure. Great. And the only part that I really find getting into the realm of, like, actual nonsense is um, talking about the power spectra differentials of people saying the same phrases. And uh, do, do either do either of you sound music folks have any clue? Does that parse at all for you? I
2: would have to probably go back through and, and read that section again um, before I would have any any specific thoughts on it. It's. It feels. I mean,
1: he is getting at something, not something particularly useful to state, but he is getting at something with regard to, you know, whenever anybody talks about, whenever anybody repeats the same words, they are acting the same way. They are pretending to be the same person, and he views it as a sincere, sort of transcendence and people uh, existing across time and space, but it. It is also, on a metaphorical level, quite apt to, with regard to you know things like
0: the the
1: secret conductor.
0: Yeah. See, I I took that whole the whole bit of mucho hearing the music and and basically pointing out that one flaw that he could hear. I I thought that was interesting in that he's able under under the influence of LSD. To take in these multiple signals at once and process out a singular um, thought or or idea or realization, whereas Oedipus is almost doing the opposite. she's taking in a singular sign, in this case the the post horn, and extrapolating it out into almost an infinitesimal series of ideas and interrelated um, symbols and and ideas and thoughts. So I thought that was kind of an interesting. and I could be way off base there, but that's kind of how I, I saw that, that little particular dialogue between them.
2: It's a good observation.
0: Yeah. I also want to mention, going back to the, the hilarious using LSD, um, I, that was something that I thought was interesting, especially now, 60 years later, that he was, in essence, using LSD to treat his patients, and we are now... Sort of in a in a position where LSD and other psychedelics are being used to treat PTSD mm-hmm. and other a few other mental illnesses and it's it, it's showing actual success now granted there's a lot of obviously a lot of research that would have to be done on it, and it's from my understanding outrageously expensive and so it's almost entirely limited to specific um, individuals who are i guess have enough of an influence or have enough insurance coverage probably to be able to do it but those who have been able to do it have had almost nothing but good things to say about it
1: yeah, yeah. and the, the fundamental difference between that that early uh, attempts to use uh, psychedelics and psychiatry and the current wave is essentially that you they, they were trying to see how they could extend that sense of wonder and that prof- profundity Into everyday life because that's what everyone wants, you know, ideally you could feel that kind of joy And terror on a moment-to-moment basis. Just hopefully you have a stronger sense of what's real um And that method of just giving you know, somebody a hundred micrograms a day doesn't work But the new methods are much more of a matter of taking it and then just doing therapy with a counselor for Mm -hmm. hours and so it's it's a very different approach to using the same tool.
0: Does anybody have anything else that they want to go over before we get into quotes? Not uh, personally. Luke, well.
1: I wanted to ask how everyone feels about the sailor. The old man with the post
0: home oh, tattoo. God, we how do how okay. I don't know how we forgot about that. That's yeah. I found that to be a really interesting part of this chapter. And it kind of goes back to the the guy in the bar as to whether or not you know he's actually connected to this thing or not. Obviously, you know, he seems to have knowledge of it and what he says to her seems to have some validity, but at the same time you know, those guys come and and talk to him. And I, I kind of went back and forth on that whole thing where are the, his quote unquote friends that come over to help him, you know, is that kind of the, like the government stepping in to kind of, you know, shut this guy up. He's talking too much about what we don't want him talking about kind of thing. Um, I, yeah, I definitely thought that was a very interesting, um, section of the chapter.
1: The, the DT metaphor that immediately follows that, that, you know, when I first read this chapter a while ago, you know, I, 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 it, I just took it for granted that it made sense. But this time through, it feels almost almost more word salad than what Mucho's talking
2: about. It, it is definitely an instance where the the construction of those paragraphs and how she seems to be having a hallucination of the sailor's death and then going back to, to reality of, of what is actually going on, and then and then back to his death again, is very reminiscent of, of again that bad trip imagery that she's having that whole evening.
0: Hmm. Well, and, the, and just the fluctuating uh, imagery, like you know, seeing this the the waste. What is it? like? She's, is it that waste is written on it, or it's the post horn is drawn on it? But then later, when he says just mail the letter, the stamps on it, and she looks at it again, and it's just a regular stamp. Um, yeah, I don't know. That was, that was a really interesting scene. And I, I, I'm surprised we forgot about that. So I'll use that as a jumping off point to go into quotes because that scene had my, my choice for uh, a memorable quote for this book. And it's a long one, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it it starts with, uh, the eyes closed, cammed each night out of that safe furrow. Um, the bulk of the city's waking each sunrise, set again virtuously to plowing. What rich soils had he turned? What concentric planets uncovered? It goes on for a while, but it's it's so it, it simultaneously it's very it's the it's for me the most pinch on part of the chapter, and it's also my favorite quote in here. It's it's so just packed with. Words i've my brain's shutting down already, just even thinking about trying to process it. I went through I think I read it like three times when I was going back to this chapter, and it was just so there's so much going on, and it's so well written to me, um that it's one of those instances, and I think I recall the first time I read it that that was one of those parts of it that really made me kind of like stop for a second and and just kind of let everything absorb and go back and reread it again. That whole part, I think it's like a two page quote that I've marked altogether. is just so, so well done. Um, That's me though. I don't know. What what, what are y'all's quotes?
2: It's a great quote. And I think it also, I think it gets again, bringing up the fact that she's probably on something during that scene. It gets back to what, Mucho says about how each of us are an antenna and like the moment she touches this man and tries to help him get back into his house like she starts to not only see his death eventually but also ponder like what circumstances of creation brought him forth what things he did you know what what fields he he had plowed I believe is one of the questions in there just Mm -hmm. taking on this entire man's life experience and in just sort of one brief instant it's it's a beautiful section of of the chapter and it it both supports the plot in what's going on but it also just showcases how brilliant of of a writer thomas pinchon is my quote is similar in that regard and it it comes from um a bit earlier when she she first runs away from nefarious's house and similarly it's a long quote so i don't read the entirety of it but um The quote that's on page 95 in my edition says, At some indefinite passage in night's sonorous score, it also came to her that she would be safe, that something, perhaps only her linearly fading drunkenness, would protect her. The city was hers, as made up in sleep so with customary words and images, cosmopolitan culture, cable cars, it had not been before. She had safe passage tonight, to its far blood's branchings, be they capillaries too small for more than peering into. Or vessels mashed together in shameless municipal hickeys out on the skin for nothing but tourists to see. And then it continues on past there, but it's another instance of his remarkable ability to describe settings and place, similar to when she looks at the neighborhood at the end of chapter one and compares it to a circuit board. Mm-hmm. Just his his description of streets and byways and alleyways as as capillaries and blood vessels running through a body um, is so genius and the the imagery is so poetic that it's one of my favorite quotes in the whole
0: book yeah passages like that are there i don't remember who it was that said it but someone had mentioned that he he writes his his sentences like math equations everything has a has a place and it's very specifically detailed out and and balanced and it's it's parts of the book like this that really make that ring true it, there's just such a a beauty to it but it's it's so perfectly constructed that it it is mathematical in a sense
2: yeah and i think that that quality of his writing is what has caused his work to be so carefully considered for so long because if if you were perhaps this is a, a reductionary phrase, but less capable of a writer, but still operating in the same thematic circles that that Pinchon does over the course of his career, I don't think people would have taken notice of him. And I don't think that he his books would have been taught or analyzed or discussed even still to, to the modern day. Like, you can't deny his talent, even if you aren't, like apparently the Pulitzer Committee was, was aren't able to read his work. You, you still have to to admit that he's an incredibly talented sentence crafter.
0: Yeah, it it demands appreciation whether or not you actually like it.
2: Yeah.
0: It would just be completely laughable
1: if he tried to tackle these themes and these plots without his ability to actually dissect these narratives into words.
0: mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, Will, Luke, do y'all have a quote? Do you want to talk?
1: Yeah, I have the... I mean, it's it's the... <laughs> it's the same one i literally just mentioned about the the dts and it's it's you know it's just huge it's just for me that paragraph is this book that that forcing of the metaphor and the the self aware you know the lampshading of this metaphor doesn't make sense and this the specifically sorry i paged away for a second Trembling, unfurrowed, she slipped sideways, screeching back across grooves for years to hear again the earnest high voice of her second or third collegiate love, ray glozing, bitching among us, and the syncopated tonguing of a cavity about his freshman calculus DT. God help this old tattooed man, meant also a time differential, a vanishingly small instant in which change had to be confronted for at last what it was, or it could no longer disguise itself as something innocuous like an average rate where velocity dwelled in the projectile, though the projectile be frozen in mid-flight, where death dwelled in the cell,
0: though the cell be looked in on at its most quick. Yeah, I love it. I just... I love it. Uh, Luke, did you have...
3: Yeah, the quote that I really liked is on, for me, page 121. Um it's it starts with the it's the paragraph that starts with under the freeway. He waved her on in the direction she'd been going. Always one, you'll see it. Um it uh although he does Pynchon does seem to focus more on the what the uh it he focuses more on like the experiences of an inanimate object, um, but then later goes on to talk about the the bum, the hobo who occupies that bed in the room. But that whole thing just struck me as very similar to Kerouac, um, and Kerouac himself would probably have done a, a similar type of paragraph, just more focused on what the bum has experienced, what the hobo has experienced. Um, something that came up in my my some of the scholarly stuff that I read was uh, how similar Pynchon is to the Beat Generation in terms of his focus on, um, you know, the people that are that are not part of mainstream society that have either dropped out of mainstream society or were never a part of mainstream society. And that whole, that whole quote just struck me as something that could, could have been in uh, on the road. Um, Except, I mean, it's a little bit more flowery and complicated than the way that Kerouac wrote. Um, That whole paragraph is just really beautiful writing. Um, I did see one of the scholars claim that um, all artists are nostalgic for the decade in which they grew up. Um, and, you know, the 1930s, when Pynchon would have been growing up, um, it's kind of the one of the cliche things that people think about with the 1930s is, you know, bums and hobos taking, you know, getting on trains and going around America yeah. and bumming around, so.
0: Yeah.
2: It also occurs to me that Will's quote confirms that Oedipo went to college. It says that it was her second or third collegiate love. Thank you. Yeah, you're right. There
0: you go. Yeah. Good catch. Um, Did anybody have a most pinch on part of the chapter? I I think for me, like I said, it was that that quote that uh, Will and I had, uh, not Will and I, I'm sorry, Luke and I both pointed out. Um, Did anybody else have anything?
2: It's hard to pick just one because honestly, like this whole chapter... Can be it's riddled with them, right? Summarized as the most pinching aspect of the novel, from the mixing of theoretical physics with with engineering to the whole extended paranoia trip over the course of the night to the, the stuff with Doctor Hilarious and and its somewhat tenuous relationship to potentially M- something like MK Ultra to just LSD and and subvert like there's just so much of it. It's hard to pick one.
1: Yeah, I. I'm partial, I guess, if I have to pick one, to the 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 dance scene. That seems a little bit less characteristic than a lot of the, the sections we've been choosing so far, but I have a very hard time imagining any writer um, writing that scene in, in the same kind of sense that he does.
0: Yeah, it would definitely not come off the same... I think, in, in almost anyone else's hands.
1: Yeah, to kind of build on
3: that, um, I think I already talked about how the, the description of the hotel is similar to the wedding scene in Vineland. Um, just the phrase, a sprawling, many-leveled German Baroque hotel carpeted in deep green just seems like a very pinching way to describe stuff. That whole opening sequence seems like a very mm-hmm. pinching way to to open a chapter.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Well, if no one else has anything else, uh, that will wrap up chapter five for us, and we will move on to chapter six, the last chapter, and then uh, we'll do a wrap-up episode after that to kind of go over the, the book as a whole. Um, but I, I do want to thank everyone who has been listening for staying with us and and for going on this trip with us. And um, we appreciate any questions or comments that anyone has. Please send them over to us at mappingthezonepod at gmail.com. And we will be back next week to finish this book up. We'll see y'all then.
3: Bye. Bye. See y'all.